Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There's an awful lot of ferment in Republican politics today and in the country's politics. And one guy who's right in the middle of all of it is Jeff Rowe, a uh, political consultant from Missouri who served as Ted Cruz's campaign manager, now involved in eight of the upcoming Senate races, and ran the campaign of Luther Strange, who just uh, was defeated by Roy Moore in Alabama in a race that got quite a bit of attention for obvious reasons. Jeff is a fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics uh, this fall, and I sat down with him the other day to talk about all of this. Jeff Rowe, a fellow political campaign warrior, I welcome you both here and to the Institute of Politics. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I came from New York City, and that's where my introduction to politics began. You grew up on a farm in Missouri. I did. Uh, And and was when did this whole? Well, first of all, talk about the farm a little bit, and what what your life was like uh, then, and how did you how did politics begin to creep into your thinking? So, Lynn County, Missouri, Missouri is still. Mason Dixon line country kind of goes through there unofficially. And Lynn County was a split lean Democrat County. Uh, Sullivan County, just to the north of it, is real Democrat. And then Putnam County, which is north of that, is the most Republican county in the state. Why is that? I mean, are they different in character? I mean, what explains the split? I think it goes all the way back to all the way back to the uh, Civil War. Huh. I mean, you have a you have a county, Clay County, which is one of the larger counties in Missouri, that that Bush won by one vote out of about a hundred, roughly a hundred thousand votes cast, won by one vote. Which Bush? The uh, second this Bush. This is W. Uh huh. And Abraham Lincoln didn't get a single vote in that county. Huh. So it was like nine sixty two to zero. And so when you talk, when you look at the evolution, and, and now. Um, now Trump won it, I think, by 14 points, 14 uh-huh. 15 points. So I think that migration has happened overall in rural areas around the country for sure. But specific to Missouri, I think it's the old Union-Confederate kind of battles that happened throughout the throughout the years. I really do think it's a pretty good chunk of that. Lynn County was Democrat all the way growing up. Now they don't have a single Democrat in the courthouse. Um, and so it moved. My grandmother was on the Republican women's auxiliary republican women's club and so she would drag me to fundraisers when politicians would come through town and and go see the state auditor that was coming through and did you want to go or no not necessarily (laughs) i mean i love my grandmother and she's a world meant the means meant the world to me and still does she passed uh we named our our first daughter 
her middle name is after my grandmother, so uh-huh. she was real instrumental in my life. But so I probably did just because I did whatever my grandmother wanted to do. Um, but it wasn't a big passion. We we didn't we talked about world events at the dinner table, but it would just be as easy to talk about the Royals or the Chiefs than talk about world events. What kind of uh, farming did you do? Had um, so about a hundred acres of corn and soybeans, and then had. This is all before it became corporate, but we had about three or four sows and about 100, probably 50 head of cattle and at any given time, 100, 100 pigs. And you worked it? Yeah, I was, you know, I was, my parents actually worked off the farm. My dad was a, worked for the telephone company and my mom eventually became a postmaster in a nearby small town. So between the two of them, they knew the name and address of everybody in town. That helps a little bit for pol- political reasons later. <laughs> <clears throat> but she had, um, my mom stayed home with me until I went to school. And then my dad, when my sister was born 10 years later, retired early to stay at home. And so we were heavily involved and lived, you know, a few miles away from my grandparents' farm and were there every waking moment. You mentioned the Royals. You you were a big baseball guy. I am, Yeah. Then, the then and now, then and now, easier, easy, easy then and now, easy now. This year, not so as much, not as much. In between was a pretty dry patch. Yes, uh, but yeah, I grew up with George Brett and Frank White and Amos Otis, and I mean it was Steve Balboni. I can name. Them. I have every baseball card of every Royal from that my grandmother got me from 1973 to 1985. Well, don't talk to me about dry patches, man. I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> right. It took took us 108 years, so uh, I know all about uh, yeah. all about dry patches. You play the game when you were a kid? I played little league and pony league, and yeah, all the way through until I started umpiring, which uh-huh. is like you know what people that can't play do. <laughs> um, and people who want to exercise authority, you are, <laughs> you're right. you're an authoritative. Never, rarely right, but never in doubt. You uh, you joined the National Guard. Yep. Uh, when you were 17, uh, tell me what made, uh, what led you to do that? I think the, uh, probably the scholarship opportunities. I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to figure out college. Um, my family was, was, you know, very comfortable and very middle-class had good jobs, but that wasn't my money. So I was going to have to do it myself. And, um, had either of your folks gone to college? They both attended but not graduated. Mm-hmm. My dad went for a semester. My mom went for a few. Um, so I didn't know how I was going to get that done. So I was part of it. Nobody had ever served in the military. Mainly agriculture exemptions took care of everybody through, through, um, throughout. And so I think it was this intersection of what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? What's the easiest path? And it seemed like the end of military was, was there. There was a 13 Bravo, which is a 155 howitzer unit. 25 miles away in Chillicothe, Missouri, and shooting off a big gun sounded pretty cool. Um, the second week of basic training kind of took that out of me, but it seemed very exciting at the time. Uh, so I joined, had a 365 delayed entry, and um, and then went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma after I graduated from... I graduated on a Sunday and left on the bus on a Tuesday. And uh, ended up in Korea. Yeah, it is keep up program in in, in one and and Fort Papa three, which at that time was a live fire base in Korea, and so spent a little time over there and came back and finished up the guard uh, at a very small school in Northwest Missouri. 
Did you, uh, how do you process what you're seeing now with North Korea having spent time over there? Does that affect your thinking on this at all? Well, at that time when they would, they would beat it into our head, we were to train on a howitzer. Essentially, if, if they decide to attack, you don't move out. You just turn the guns around in the, in the parking lot and start shooting. And they talk about the minutes that you have. We had, we had, um, there were fire drills. I can't remember if they called them something more interesting than that, but where we had a minute and a half to get to our guns. This is when we were on 4 Papa 3, which is a live fire base, which is probably, I don't know, probably five miles off the DMZ. <clears throat> 4 Papa 3 might be a little bit closer, but any time of day, any time of night, you had to drop everything and be able to have a round down range in a minute and a half. What... Uh just for people who aren't familiar and haven't spent time where you spent time, um, this whole issue of what actual warfare would be like if it broke out uh, there, um, what you describe is there's not a whole lot of time to, uh, and, and likely a lot of carnage on both sides if uh, yep. if, if something happened. Yeah, this would be like, like Northern Virginia attacking D.C., but just take the water out of the way. I mean, it is right there. Yeah. And it is literally – the terrain is a little a little, um, a little, little bumpy, but it would be hundreds of thousands of casualties instantly. And that's without using any nuclear, nuclear weapons. weapons. Yeah, I mean, they just are right on top of each other. And most of the population in South Korea is in the northern half of the country. <clears throat> and so it would be – devastating quick and there's nowhere to go and there's no and there's no way to uh sort of instantly prevent any incoming from the north it's right there there's nothing to prevent it mm-hmm. no if it it's a powder keg if it goes off there's no putting it back in so uh not to drag you into a foreign policy discussion because yeah, right. we, we we got a lot of politics to talk about but uh it, do you think there is a military answer to what's going on over there. Bannon said he didn't think so. Yeah, I don't think, um, I only know what I read. So, and what I, when I talk to smart people to talk about, it doesn't seem like there is a natural, uh, conclusion of this. It's very positive. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like we would have to take some extreme measures to end. And and as you point out, and, and, and endure a lot of carnage. And endure a lot of carnage. It's not clear to me how loyal they are to their leader. And so if, you know, maybe there's some things outside the typical chain of command that would happen from a military exercise. But um, but I, outside, ab- absent that, I don't, I don't see it's a bad situation. So let's get back to your story. Yeah. Uh, you hooked up with a fellow named Sam Graves, mm-hmm. who's now a longtime member of Congress, but... Uh, to tell me about that partnership because that really was how your political career yep. blossomed. Yep, he's um, he's a good friend. He was in my wedding. We've had a long relationship together. We can finish each other's sentences. We're just very good friends, much more than politics. Uh, but I wanted to get in politics, and he was a state representative in the far northwest part of Missouri, and a state a state senate seat opened up, and my home territory, my hometown was in the very far southeast part of the district, 16 counties in northwest Missouri, 154,000 people. And so he ran in an open seat 
1994. I'd done some, I'd kicked around on a couple other campaigns, just putting up yard signs and driving them around. But here's my first one where it paid me enough to put gas in my car. And so, um, he hired me. I think hired is probably a loose term for it. And he paid me occasionally. Uh, the first day we were ever together, he, uh, we had a long night at the fraternity house and he had to wake me up and come up to my room to wake so me you up. So were, you were a student at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. just finishing college. And uh, we went on a road trip together uh, across, the, across the top of the district. And I get in the car, I don't know what to say, and here's a state representative who I think is not, no offense to state representatives, but at the time is probably the most important person I'd met. Um, and I'm trying to just make conversation. I'm trying to ask people what I should bring up and talk to him about. And I said, well, do you like sports? And he said, no. And, and I said, well... <laughs> What do you think about you know the, this other politician? He's like, ah, I really don't care about that. And he puts his seat back and sleeps for five hours. <laughs> Wake up and we go to the event. Come out of the event, and I said, well, that was really good. He said, yeah, I really didn't like it. It was kind of boring. Puts his seat back and sleeps the rest of the way. <laughs> so it's we've been sleeping that was, to each other. That was that was that was the beginning <laughs> of a beautiful. No wonder you have to finish his sentences. He <laughs> That's right. falls asleep before he fin- <laughs> he, he finishes him. Yeah. Well, so, I would say from being from Chicago, <clears throat> when you say about a politician. And another person that they can finish each other's sentences. It has a whole different kind of meaning. But <laughs> that's anyway, right. Um, that's right. So we won in '94. I thought yeah. I was a genius. I d- d- later realized that every Republican won in 1994. And so I went to the state capitol in Jefferson City, and I was with his, him. With him. Yep. So you must have worked your way up from driving him around while yeah. he slept to uh, to being a staffer for him yep at the end of the campaign i was probably what you'd call i mean this is a state senate race we spent about three hundred thousand. our opponents spent you know two and a quarter so it was a mid-sized race we probably put a couple hundred of that in direct voter contact and we probably had knocking around money of you know fifty thousand or so for grassroots. and you ended collateral. up running that uh that field program yeah so mm-hmm. i did the grassroots collateral did all the parades Essentially, what would be commonly known. And as how a did you director. how did you know what to do? Because you were just a kid. I mean, I, I, the reason I ask you is because people always say, "Well, how do you become you?" Yeah. And uh, and the truth is, in most cases, uh, it's exactly the story you're telling, which is someone signs up for a campaign and does everything that they can that they're asked to do, and every little job that comes up and works their way up. Yep. I think I was – there's a guy actually in that campaign that was never paid. He was an unpaid guy. His name is Jim Nibe. He's since passed. Um, I think I just did everything he told me to do, and I tried to make it good. But a story that – tried to make it better. But a story that Sam says – that Sam tells <clears throat> is fairly embarrassing, so I'll share it with all your listeners <laughs> – is I want – the first strategy meeting of the campaign was, was happening. And uh, so they convened the meeting, and, of course, I'm getting the coffee and trying to sit in the corner of the room to stay. And the guy that was kind of in charge of the campaign said, get him out of here. I don't know. He could be a plant from the enemy or whatever. So I go out in this long hallway in this big open room and sit, and there's a green, you know, kind of those famous, um, or not famous, but common lamps, green lamps. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Kind of overarching. And right. then we have a yellow pages, <clears throat> a big book of yellow pages, and white pages, and I'm looking up every Farm Bureau member cross-referencing on this on this piece of paper that I'm writing it out on a literally a big chief tablet. And so Sam comes out, the candidate, and he says, hey, I'm really sorry. He's just kind of like that, and we trust you. You're doing a great job. And evidently, I don't recall this. He could have made it up if he did. It's a good story. 
He said, I, he said that I said, uh, well, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to look up phone numbers, I'm just going to be the best phone looker upper you've ever had. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think how the campaign happened yeah, and how I learned. And, and I think in government service, the same. And I really enjoyed, I was secretary for him. I started out as a secretary in the Senate office. There's three staff members. They have about a hundred thousand dollar budget. And after the first year, the chief of staff, we, I jokingly call it chief of no staff, left, and I became the chief of staff. And, and so, how old were you then? I was uh, 26, mm-hmm. 25, 26. And then he ran for reelect and won pretty decent race. The governor's legislative director moved home and ran against us. The governor was Mel Carnahan. At yes, the time. sure. And he had a very good political operation. And then in 2000, Pat Danner, who was the incumbent congresswoman, retired after the filing deadline. And that created an open seat with a week deadline to file, one week from the time that she submitted her resignation. And her her son, Steve Danner, who was a political figure, was a state senator. He was running. And so it became instantly one of the bigger races in the country. And I was running, at that time, Sam's brother Todd's race for state treasurer and we've been in the race for a year and then sam's race opens up and so i was my first general consulting i guess of doing more than one campaign um Mm -hmm. we had good people on on each team and i tried to shuttle in between and todd is more the operative he had been politics for a long time and worked for danforth and bond and all the central figures yeah sort of iconic figures in yeah Missouri Republican politics. And he'd come all the way through them, and uh, he lo- we lost that race for treasurer, and he became the U.S. attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sam, the interesting story on election night, we knew that we had to win Greene County, which is Springfield, Missouri. We had to win it by more than 19,000 votes, and it came in at about 17,500. And they're both – Sam's on one side, Todd's on the other. We have two whiteboards, TV in the middle. This is in 2000, so we're watching the election, presidential election results, the whole thing. We knew for Sam that we, if we could lose Buchanan County by less than 3,000 votes, we would probably win. And they walk in literally within 30 seconds of each other. We won Greene County, but, but by, not by enough. We lost Buchanan County by about 1,500 votes. And Todd, I look at Todd. Todd looks at me. He says, he's going to be a freaking congressman. And I look at him and I said, am I writing your, your speech or are you writing his speech? Like, how are we going to work these speeches out? No, we had not prepared for a win or a loss. And so Sam looked at me and he goes, did I win? I said, yeah, you're going to win. And he said, you want to be my chief of staff? And I said, I don't have any other offers. Right at the moment, huh? Right at the moment. Yeah. So that was it. Yeah. So I went to him with him for six You immediately six years. deduced that you weren't going to be deputy state treasurer, huh? <laughs> That's right. I had to wait some measures. Um, and so I went to D.C. with him and spent five years in D.C., Washington, D.C., from 01 to through 05. I want to ask you about the D.C. experience. But yeah. before I do, what is it about campaigns? You obviously love them. Yep. Um, what is it about campaigns that you, that, that, that you find so exhilarating? Uh, I mean, you've done very well at it, and it's been a pretty good career for you, but you like you you fell in love with it before you were making any money doing it. No, yeah, yeah, a long time before. You know, I think it's probably I don't know any other industry, so I don't know this as, as factual as I would like <laughs> hope that it would be. But I think it's one of the few industries where you actually can work yourself into success. I think that 
you strip away all the advantages that people have in life or disadvantages. And when you get on the playing field in front of the rigors of democracy, it is hand to hand and there's nobody, there's no advantages that you have. There's no institutional advantages. And I'm not talking about money raised and all that sort of stuff or doors knock. I'm talking about you can actually work yourself into success in politics. Um, I read somewhere that you, uh, not only work yourself into success, that you work your staff pretty hard as well. Sort of legendary for yeah. for they got to be in it early. They got to stay late. They got to answer the phone before the third ring. Yeah, uh, that's too, tough, man. Too many profiles of me, probably. <laughs> Having children helps with that. By the way, I try and stay between the eights now. Uh-huh. Eight before eight in the morning, I don't do it unless they're already responding and I can call them yes. uh, after 8 o'clock unless it's an emergency. I try not to. But we have our company's growing now. So on a campaign, yeah, the wheels are off on a campaign. I'm whatever it takes to win. And I think that you, I think that um, winners do what losers won't do. And it's hard to work on a weekend in the fall when it's nice football weather. And it's hard to come in after church and work a you know good solid day on a Sunday when everybody else is off. It's just hard to do that. There's a toll that it creates and a price that you pay for doing it. But in a campaign, I believe it's like, I think it's the differentiation. How the campaign is structured and the work ethic that it takes to involve it, I think is probably a point and a half to two points at the end of the day. There's a grassroots measurement, peer-reviewed academic research on mm-hmm. 27 to 3.2% impact from a ground game. I'm not talking about that. I'm actually talking about the just sheer willpower of getting and executing on a, on a mission. And so I don't think um, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't have every point and a half of that in my camp. We're going to take a short break and we'll be yep. right back with Jeff Rowe. So uh, you, you spent four years as a chief of staff in Washington, or thereabouts, right? Yeah. I went back and forth. In Even Congress. then, I left mm-hmm. to do redistricting and then came back, and I ran to do, left to do a special election to fill his seat and came back. and So I was kind of off the and I'd run his reelects. And so, Did you like govern, government? I, you know, I, I, I didn't. Um, I enjoyed the, the – the, um, I have a – small part of me has a servant's heart so i do enjoy the casework opportunities that we had and actually solving problems for people that's not not trying to be corny i mean that part of it was okay but i wasn't that interested we had a freshman member in a swing seat so he got legislation to pass and you know how it all works mm-hmm. um it was just pretty pretty um vanilla I actually liked the missouri legislature a little bit better there was actually you could actually draft an amendment and put it on the floor and put a democrat in a bad spot or you know, enhance your your position, um, but there it was pretty vanilla. But I spoke at a at a um, at a at grade bridge crossing. We'd gotten two hundred fifty thousand bucks for a for a uh, railroad crossing arm to come down to protect people, and I spoke at it. And I, the person in charge was very specific on my speaking time, and there was senators there and other elected officials. And so I was speaking from you were representing the congressman. <clears throat> that's right, reading a letter on his mm-hmm. behalf. And so I had 153 to 157 or something was my speaking slot, and I thought that's perfect. It's, there's a bandstand, the the tire tracks with the or the um, railroad tracks with the with a guard with the arms crossed. He was behind us, and so I go up at 153, and I no more get two senses into my 
into my speech and here comes the train rolling through <laughs> and everybody's clapping and I'm looking around and speaking and awakening everybody. And about one fifty six had finished up and I said, thanks. And I said, Hey, you want me to, I walk, as I'm walking off stage, I said, I don't think they heard me. You want me to do that again? And she said, Nope, you were just right on time. <laughs> and so driving back, I thought, you know, I could probably use my tools and <laughs> send somebody that maybe they would want to speak when the, when the train's not passing. What, uh, so you left, you quit, you you went back and and decided to go full time. Started my company, yeah. No, I just started my company. Mm-hmm. I started in an off year. I left, and you know, at that time, no gift ban, no lobbyist ban. Two thousand five. The so five. Um, it was a great job. I mean, no gift ban, no lobbyist ban. Meaning, there was a lot of money in I was Missouri going, politics. Uh, there was a lot of Missouri in, in, in politics, really. In I politics, mean, generally. Yeah, it, Abramoff was just was happening and wrapping up, but they hadn't put in the in. in if you wanted to go to dinner any night or a sports game, like you do all that stuff. I wasn't wanting for tickets. I made 120 grand or 30 grand. I made 20 grand on the outside. It's pretty high cotton for a guy that was slopping hogs, you know, a few years earlier. And uh, for someone who was in government as well, you. Yeah, it's great, great deal. So I left and I just kind of scratched out on a pad, like, how am I going to make a company work? I just didn't want to go too far backwards. I bought a house in Liberty 11, which is a precinct in Liberty, Missouri, which was the swing precinct in the swing county that I was talking about earlier, the Bush one by one vote, in the swing congressional district, in the swing state, in the whole country. So I moved right there, bought a house there. and so I actually, Just to live at ground zero? Just to be at ground That's zero. That's hardcore, man. Like. Yeah, yeah, crazy or something. <laughs> um, so I bought a house, and I just, I just didn't want to go backwards. And so I, then I started my, my political company and, and didn't have a name, didn't have an... I just figured everybody start pouring in invoices and paying me, and uh, it's a much different experience mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning. None of your friends hire you, and uh, it takes ninety days to get a. Client. And at first, you were just offering sort of general uh, yep. campaign uh, strategy and advice and yep. management advice and so on. Yeah, I had done it for free for for Sam. Sam had this very when he was a when he was a state rep when he first ran for state representative nobody helped him and so he had a philosophy that he should help those beneath him it would serve two purposes one it would help raise the boats mm-hmm. of all the of, you know raise the boat so high you tide. could have candidates beneath him yeah mm-hmm. and so he would have me go run state rep races and state senate races as a gift to those candidates as a gift to those candidates before mccain feingold he spent a million bucks on state ledge and county and city council and mm-hmm. school board like he was building a party where none existed, and I did all but that. But that made you. Oh yeah, uh, I was the guy. Right, I was the guy, and I was I was free, mm-hmm. so I controlled all the voter contact. I got to do. I got to do. You know, talk about an outlier, the book outlier. I essentially got to do a hundred races without threat of being fired, and they had to really take my advice because we were providing the funding. Yeah, so that's different. Offering all that for free is different than asking people to pay for it. Yep, yep. So I went ninety days without a client. I had fifty thousand bucks I'd saved up. Um, I hired three people right out of the gate because I was going to have a huge company, and um, and uh, I remember the the girl came in who still works with me. Thirteen years later, she came in and she was talking kind of loud, and she said, "Jeff, we have two weeks till payroll. We have thirteen thousand dollars in the bank and seventeen thousand dollars in bills." And I said, don't ever say that out loud again. It's going to work out. Just don't ever say it where the others could hear that maybe they're not going to get their paycheck. Yes. 
And so I finally got a client. I got a big Senate race, local state Senate race, and they started paying, and we scratched it out. And a friend of mine who just recently passed, who took his company from nothing to a to a publicly traded multi-billion dollar corporation, he said, you need a business plan. And you need to have you need to understand what you're doing from a from a company standpoint, what your margins are, actually how to run a business. He said, "I'm going to split the cost of my business. Guy is going to come, sit in your office, watch what you do every day, and then write a report." Yeah, you know when I ran my I had a firm for 25 years, started off small uh, as you did, um, and uh, at first there was a lot of anxiety associated with. Every cycle is over, and now you have to figure out. Now you got nothing. Right. And you've got this payroll, and you've got to pay people. And how are you going to yep. work that out? I wasn't particularly a businessman, yep. uh, but I was running a business, and that's and ultimately you become comfortable that it'll come. Right? You've built it, and it will come if you go out and hustle. But it's uh, there's a lot of anxiety associated with it. Yeah. I have to ask you. Yep. Uh, one of the Things that may, has made your reputation for better and worse, and I'd say this as someone who threw a lot of punches yep. uh, in my time as a uh, political uh, consultant, is the the ruthless thing, right? The running uh, uh, running negative ads that have enough of a kernel that you can make a straight face defense of it, but also are. Uh, Others would say taking liberties and can be pretty damaging. Uh, this uh, ad against this uh, candidate, uh, Sarah Joe Shettles, who was a nominee running against Graves, I guess, right? That's right. Yep. Who didn't have much of a shot, really. Um, but um, you took a hard shot at her because she had been selling ads for some scientific magazine. But the parent company also... Uh, represented penthouse own penthouse right own penthouse yeah and so you basically presented her as a peddler of smut mm-hmm. do you ever do you ever look back at any of this and say maybe that was going too far no not for a second that is actually the i won't belabor it but Omni Magazine was in operation for seven years. She worked there for 13 years. She listed in her, her her predicate for running for office was that she understood how to work with CEOs and bring them together in Washington, D.C. And so she had a um, – that was on her resume that she sold ads for Air Force and Army and all these different huge companies. And so I have every Omni Magazine ever printed – or not Omni. Omni is a parent company. Um, every of the science of uh, the science magazine that she worked for, I have every one of it's ever printed, and not a single person, not a single company, not a single industry that she's labeled on her on her um, on her uh, website did any advertising there. So it is true she worked for Penthouse. I think she shaded afterwards. That's okay. I think there's two things to further the reputation. One is that I own it. I don't ever hide from it i don't think it's i think you can be kind of squirrely about it and act like the candidate made you do it or something i mean i own all this stuff obviously every candidate approves every single ad that we all do as everybody somewhat knows or maybe thinks about but i also think that i that particular one is she wasn't viewed as having a, a chance to win when the reality was it was a very tough year all incumbent republicans were doing poorly we were under 50 on labor day 
she was in the you know mid thirties. And so I'm just going if you let somebody just hang around in campaigns, that's how they get beat. You you ended up getting uh, sued. The case was thrown out. In no, one I, didn't, case. I got sued on it. that was. She didn't. Uh, sue. Not on that case. Yeah, I got sued for another in, guy. In yep. in, uh, in in St. Louis for suggesting a guy was involved in a car accident and was drunk. One a candidate, someone got killed. Uh, yeah, it was in the but, Dar- he, but 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 he hadn't been drunk. It was in the Darwin Awards. They were doing a senior skip day, and they were they were dumping sand all over a parking lot, and. Um, as seniors will do, and they were having a, a beach party. Mm-hmm. And the Darwin Awards, and there was a guy in the back of the truck, tragic situation, a guy in the back of the dump truck, the driver was driving, popped the clutch, the guy fell underneath, and he ran over him, didn't know he was there. So Darwin Awards is the kind of book that puts out the dumbest way people pass away, essentially. And that's it, I took that completely, and it was on a blog, and he sued over it, and they got thrown So it was their mistake, not your mistake. Well... He's gotten a few DUIs in his life, and I don't know what, around that time. I don't know exactly if he was drunk but or not. Let me but let me ask you, th- this is sure. what I want to ask you. Yeah. Is there any boundary? Or, you, you're hired, yep. as I was hired, to yep. win. Yep. Are there any boundaries uh, that, I mean, do you ever find, did you, has anybody ever written a script or have you ever written a script where you say, you know what, that, that just goes too far. I'm not going to do that. So I think the the um, oh sure I mean we kill I mean as you know in politics we run probably eighty five percent of our ads are positive to start with, um, at the um, the voters set this limit, and you can't run things that don't work, you can't run things that aren't believable. I believe passionately in the fact that candidates have a brand and a narrative, and if you have a candidate that's running a campaign that's actually counter to their narrative and you have opposition research that exposes that. I mean, we're not talking about families. We're not talking about kids. We're not talking about, I mean, we're talking about, you know, and that, the, the Brazel case that I got sued on was a blog. I wasn't even in that race. He was looking for some sort of recourse after the, the you voters. just go around looking wherever yeah, the action yeah. is. Huh? You got, That's right. That just, was just – you did that just for, for a, a buddy. Yeah, for a buddy. Yeah, because I had a blog that's statewide. That people but it was read. an effective ad, right? It did, did it no, not they, didn't run, they didn't run an ad. It was literally a blog. He sued over Oh, I see. It was on a blog. Yeah, yeah it, it was on a, a blog. Camp, it wasn't a campaign thing. But – There was I, one I know that you have uh, spoken about. There was a candidate uh, – uh, and then I want to move on to president, yeah. your presidential campaigns. But sure. Schweik, who was uh, running for governor of – Yep. Of Missouri in a primary, you were working against him. Ran an ad that was uh, that was tough. Uh, he he committed suicide during that race. Mm-hmm. Uh, was how that that prob- I, I've never come a- across that situation, and I know yeah. there were other issues at play there, and obviously he had troubles that no one foresaw. But did that shake you up? I know you're a you're a church-going guy. I mean, did you? Was that stunning to you? When yeah, it was a tragic situation. Yeah, nobody, like, no one involved with that would want to that have happened again. Um, or did could, it change actually, you in any way? Um, well, I hope so. I hope I'm always kind of a better person. But I, I don't. Um, from the from the political standpoint, I had saw Tom. Actually, and I don't want to go to the law of yeah. emotions around it, but he was actually a friend. I mean, we talked routinely when I didn't go to work for him in that race. 
our friend, we didn't talk again. I saw him the weekend before. Um, it was a, it was a tragic, it was a, it was a tragedy. Um, I don't know why he did it. I don't know what was, I have read since, you know, mm-hmm. news about it, but no, it was a, it was a very, um, very low point. Yeah. You, uh, you went to Iowa Mm-hmm. You you had built this business. You were quite successful in your own realm. You go to Iowa, and you basically become like a foot soldier for Mike Huckabee in 2008 yep. uh, in Iowa. Uh, so much so that I, I read you, you said you, you didn't want your wife to see it because you were you were such a peon yeah. in this organization that it was almost uh it was almost demeaning but you put yourself in that position because you want to work your way into the into the organization there yeah it's the only way to do it um that's a true story i didn't know that had been printed anywhere but um we we'd gone up and we I, do good work here yeah it sounds like it um <laughs> um but we'd gone up and i we had probably eight or nine people in the company then mm-hmm. and i said we're just going to take this last month and all of us go to iowa and we had done fundraisers for all the candidates in the 2000, gosh, what was that? Eight. Eight, 2008. Um, you know that cycle well. Yes. In 2008, we did a fundraiser in, for almost all the presidential candidates and tried to raise thirty or 40000 for all of them just to get their attention. Hey, look at us. We can run campaigns. And Mike Huckabee was one of the most not, – nothing against the other 08 candidates, but – he was really an amazing guy. He didn't a performer, man. And he was, and our donors loved him, and we loved him, and and he Sarah. had a big, ba- you know, having an evangelical base in Iowa is not a small thing in those caucuses. Yeah, particularly in a spread out field. Mm-hmm. And so Chip um, Salzman was there, and Sarah Huckabee was there, and a lot of the Huckabee David and she's probably nostalgic for those days right now. Oh, right, she's got <laughs> right. the toughest job in Washington when it was easier. Yeah. So anyway, I did. I went up, and the first day in the campaign, of course, my wife thought it was pretty cool. We'd just recently been married. Oh, my gosh, we're doing up here on this presidential race. I was like, yeah, just drop me off at the front door. We're going to bring her <laughs> and walk in with some, with some Panera, you know, some Panera uh, um, donuts for everybody in the morning. And uh, drop me off because I don't want you to see what I'm going to go. And so I went up, and they, they gave awards uh, for whoever made the most calls each hour. And it was like a signed T-shirt or a yard sign, and so I was just like committed myself to winning it every every hour, and so that happened for about three days, maybe four. It felt like a year and a half. And then they decided you were hoarding all the T-shirts and yeah. gave you more to <laughs> right, do, reselling them. <laughs> so uh, Jessica Moaning, who was his kind of senior person, said, "Do you? I googled you. Can you set up phone or set up uh, computer lines?" And so it took off from there. We ended up doing all the way through Super Tuesday and. The whole family became dear friends. Um, and you got more and more responsibility there. Yep. He won the Iowa caucuses that mm-hmm. year. What, what did you learn about presidential politics uh, from that campaign? We went to um, – we went to – I believe he was probably 20,000 votes short of being the nominee in 2008. Mm-hmm. And I believe that because Fred Thompson dropped out but then got back in in South Carolina – and McCain and Thompson were close, and their campaigns were close. And he came back in. Our theory was that he came back in to stop us from winning South Carolina. And um, and we did. They stopped us. And after the election, we went into this common kind of 
political, you know, dive bar. And all the McCain people were there. And then all the Thompson people walked in, and it was high fives and hugs, and this is our election night. And so they'd stopped us. And so what I learned, which I had to relearn <laughs> a couple other times, is how this the um, the relationships between the candidates and the campaigns really matter, really impact it, and how small things in a campaign can be a huge crisis in a presidential race. Well, you know uh – in terms of relationships between campaigns, that could be really important in a place like Iowa, yep. in a caucus state, where one candidate may not be viable in a particular precinct and could assign his people to go and support another candidate. Yep. So that that the level of coordination gets to that uh, gets to that point. Uh, you worked for Rick Perry mm-hmm. in 2012. How do you make these decisions? Do you consider yourself uh, an ideologue? I mean, do you are there sort of philosophical standards that you apply to this, these candidates? Because I know, like, in, back in Kansas City, you've worked for some Democrats. No Democrats, just independents. Independents <laughs> yeah. who were Democrats. <laughs> right. uh, nonpartisan elections, yeah, right. understood. Uh, but, I mean, is there a philosophical sort of framework that you apply, or do you just look at someone and say, I think they can win? They, they, this is a winner. No, I, you know, I pitched up Mitt Romney to do this is for phones. Well, I was a vendor. In the mm-hmm. in the in the twelve cycle, more than I didn't like lead my firm like I did in sixteen. Um, I pitched Mitt Romney and, and Rick Perry in back to back days. I pitched phones for for um, for Romney, and I pitched mail for Perry. And um, and could you you couldn't have done both? Could you? No, no, no. Yeah. I was pitching just trying to get in the race. I see. Kind of mm-hmm. get in the race, and. Um, I called back. I didn't know that I would get on Romney. They kind of had a closed kind of shop there. But I went with Rick Perry because I'm – your your bigger question is are you an ideologue? Um, I think I'm – first of all, Rush Limbaugh is like my hero. I listen to Rush Limbaugh. All those years I was putting up all those signs. I'm as conservative. If I was a member – Fellow Missouri. He is. If I was of the state. If I was in the – if I was in the uh, – if I was in the, if I was a House, God forbid, if I was a congressman, I'd be like the the hardest right Freedom Caucus member. So I am. I don't know if you run a company that way or a business that way. I think that I probably keep. I don't work for anybody that's pro-choice. I don't work for anybody that's anti-gun. Um, those are fail. You know, I, I I'm not gonna. Probably hard to elect folks those. like that in the Republican Party today. Probably, I don't know that. I don't know. There's a lot, a lot of pro-choice Republicans left. There are some, but I wouldn't do that. Um, and just fundamentally, I have the conservative in the race almost every time that I have a choice. I'm going to take a short break, and yep. we'll be right back with Jeff Rowe. Tell me, you you really became very prominent in this last presidential race uh, because you uh, were. Uh, helping to run was you was your title campaign manager with Cruz? Yeah. Yep. So you, that's not just helping. So you were running Ted Cruz's campaign yep. for president. Tell me what the theory of your case was in working for Cruz, and was it the fact that was it was that a philosophical choice, or did you see him as a guy who could navigate this process? Uh, it's a great question. I'll try and tell the story fast. My I viewed it completely through a political lens. My wife is a bit of a foodie, so she likes food. So I said, here's the deal. I think I can be top two or three in a, in a presidential campaign. I know the Bush people. I know some of the Christie people. I know 
Huckabee's obviously I've got ends with you know, a lot of these different people. I think whoever I go work for has an 85% chance to lose. And so who you work for is fairly definitional. Mm-hmm. It never comes away. You know I worked for Huckabee and Perry. I mean, that, these things never go away. All the races we do, we get defined by the presidential races. So I said, I outside chance that you can win. We're going to move. We're going to take our family and move. I'm going to leave my firm. and I've hired a COO to run the company. It's a big thing, and I want you to be happy. Like, what kind of – I know a lot of the Walker people. I know the governor. Like, do you want to live in Miami or Madison? Speaking of foodie, or, this sounds like a buffet. Right? Like, it's like, a, what do you want to live – what do you want to live? What kind of – what do you – where would we like to have our daughter for a year or two? Um, most cam- most campaigns, campaign managers get fired if they don't win. So I'm going to get fired by this person probably. So I went through all this stuff, and we're on the back of a cruise ship. We took the cru- the trip of a lifetime. And she didn't shove you off the side when you told off. her all that? <laughs> she's, she's political too. But she looked at me. Well, all this stuff, I, I laid out all these percentages, and Bush had a 23% chance to win, and all these different percentages. Mm-hmm. Cruz was on the list. And she said – well, why why wouldn't instead of worrying about all that, what the where the physically it's located and what kind of food it is and all that kind of stuff, why wouldn't you just work for somebody that you believe in, and that was going to take the country in a hundred and eighty degree direction from where from where it was? You can say it. I'm not. I, <laughs> I, I think we were in a pretty good direction, but That's you right. can say it. So, um, so I said, okay, well, hang on. Let's. Uh, I had my BlackBerry. Of course, I'm on a cruise in the Mediterranean. I got my BlackBerry on. But anyway, I take my BlackBerry out. She gets a pen on this on the back of her cruise ship. She writes on the menu. She writes, we I type it in. She writes it down. We flip it over. And both said Ted Cruz. Hmm. And she said, I'm like, okay, tell me that. She goes, well, he's not going to establish a blue ribbon commission on how to fix things. Like he's going to do it. It's going to be completely opposite way. I said, well, it's the only person on this entire list of people I don't know. <laughs> it's the only person on this entire list. I don't know anybody that works for him. And it's the only person on this entire list that I worked against in his last election. So I think, who's your second choice? And she said, no, no, you, you commit, commit to it. You'll make it work. So, so you I went and saw out. him. So I went and set out on a four-month kind of venture to get in front of him. Went through all of his kind of, you know, they, every candidate has the people that, that are kind of their, their um, uh, alter egos. Go, went through the staff, did staff conference calls, flew and met people, wrote a whole plan. I'd ran my company to run a presidential i think there's three ways that you get to run to be in the white house where you sat number one is a client that you work for runs for president number two is you do so many of them that eventually somebody picks you up and you're going to run that's kind of the donner brazil and we Mm -hmm. have our own too you and carl and people like that like your guy ran and you won other people they bounce around the carwells and morrises and i mean all these guys they just they're just hanging around for a while and the third way to get there is to go do races in all the early primary states where when they go around and ask who to run, who should run their campaign, they all start saying the same names. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I went to Iowa and ran an underfunded long shot race for Senate. I had gotten two congressional races up there. I did a down ballot race. I went to New Hampshire and did a whole bunch of state rep races, which, as you know, in state, state rep races in New Hampshire, it's like 1,200 voters. Right. I went to South Carolina and took the third-tier so, guy. So I mean, you I, really ran a campaign to get this ran, campaign. Ran a campaign to run a campaign. Uh-huh. And then I went in with five points on why you should hire me. He listened to me. It was, I was told by the scheduler it was an hour meeting. We stayed for four and a half. And Good sign. A good sign. Um. And I said, I really need to decide because if this isn't going to happen, I'm going to need to look elsewhere. And he wasn't running then. It was to join his senior team nationally. And so he called a few days later and said, you got the job. You you went pretty far in that race, and it got pretty brutal 
between you and Donald Trump. Uh, first of all, when did you see the Trump freight train coming? Well, <clears throat> we saw the staying power by Labor Day. Because there were there were moments in which, I mean, Cruz for a long time stayed out of Trump's headlights there. He basically didn't pick any fights, referred to him in the most positive of terms. But as the field narrowed and it became more obvious that the two of them were on uh, on a collision course, it got pretty nasty. Yep, yep. Um, I, th- I took him seriously when he came down the, uh, the escalator, actually, that day. He had hired a guy that we tried to hire in Iowa, and I was texting him, and I kind of thought the speech was off a little bit. <laughs> and, well, that's something we've got in common. Yeah. <laughs> and his guy, like, texted back. He's like, yeah, it was awesome, wasn't it? I said, quite a speech, huh? Question mark. He said, yeah, it was awesome. You ought to see what's going on. And so we we were doing, you know, continually calling and doing analytics on people, and he was – he just overlaid the entire field non-ideologically. And so we could tell right then. I didn't know how long he would last or that he would be president for sure. But I knew that he it would take all of us attacking him at once or to get him head-to-head to beat him because he was, gonna, he was, he was moving towards a plurality of the vote that was immovable. Mm-hmm. They, weren't, they were equal parts libertarians and independents and moderates and conservatives. But they, were, they shared a general sense of anger. <clears throat> yeah, they're all pissed. Yeah, but they're not all conservative pissed. They're not all evangelical pissed. They, he was a well well rounded candidate. Pissed at the establishment, establishment. generally. Yep. Um, where's the is that the base of the Republican Party now? I mean, is that if you were to describe the base of the party, is it a Trump base, or is it uh, is it more uh, more uh, is there an establishment base within the Republican Party? Where is the Republican Party? Well, I think it's I think it's a three-legged stool. I think it's part of the base for sure. We 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 do surveys now. We ask if you're a Trump Republican. We don't we we ask if you're evangelical, if you're libertarian. We ask all these different establishment. Do you consider yourself a traditional establishment? I mean, two bad words, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really a three-legged stool. If you boil it down, you have you have very conservatives. You have, um, and these are equal kind of equal co-equal parts. Very conservatives have grown from 25 in a typical state to 50%. Most states have 50% very conservatives from an ideological standpoint. But not, they're not all necessarily Trump. They're not all Trump people. And then you have somewhat conservatives, which have drifted down to 25, and then establishment moderates of 25. If you take a look at it more functional as we see the world today, you have about 25% that are consider themselves establishments or moderates or liberal Republicans. Those are normally the same. You have twenty five to thirty percent. I that know are there Trump. were liberal Republicans. Yeah, these days. yeah there's a few left. Um, they At mostly, the Field Museum, I think, <laughs> <laughs> or in the swing districts in Wisconsin, maybe. <laughs> so and then you have um, about a third of the people who consider themselves truly Trump Republicans. I mean, they don't identify with any other. But he must activity. have some overlay because <clears throat> because he's got a like a an eighty percent approval rating among Republicans. Oh, North, yeah, at least eighty mm-hmm. percent. Most popular Republican president with his base, and in quite some time. Um, but then you have the very conservatives, and those they they're they're if Trump left, I mean, those what you got to look at is if he left the party, like how many does he take with him? That's the kind of Trump Republican test. Mm-hmm. So when you say is a Trump the base, sure, I mean the president of your party is always your base. Um, what but, how, but, what how, he would take about a third of the party? With yeah, him yeah. If he, you just did a race uh, 
down in uh, Alabama yep. uh, for Luther Strange, yep. uh, who is the appointed senator who, who succeeded uh, Jeff Sessions. And he had the support, full support of Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, uh, was defeated in a primary by Roy Moore, who may be as far uh, to the right as anybody, um, or at least he may be in his own category. I don't know. How would you describe Moore? Well, um, <clears throat> he has many of the qualities, actually, of, that Trump has as far as being against the establishment. That's actually his brand. It's, it's defined. His brand is defined by the Ten Commandments stand that he took. He and, was the he was on the Supreme he was the chief judge of the Supreme Court in Alabama and he would not remove a a Ten Commandments monument I guess from the courthouse right and so he that alignment of the kind of take it on the man take it on the establishment that's really his brand and he does it he, that it's exemplified it's it's th- that in him several different ways and for different reasons. But it's not just evangelical. I think one of the weaknesses of what people are, as they talk about the race now, one of the weaknesses is that they always take too much away from any single campaign, but is that it was rejection of Trump. I mean, it's not a rejection well, of Trump. Well, clearly not. I no, mean, he you know, Trump was very popular with the Moore voters. Uh, do you think Trump made a mistake by getting into that race? Um, no, he's an incumbent. If he's going to have political capital in Washington, D.C. with members of Congress and senators, and he wants their vote, and he says he's going to do something for them politically, they need to be able to trust that he'll do it. And he's now able to say, I went in for Luther Strange when nobody was there, and he's down 20 points, and I stuck with him. I'll stick with you, mm-hmm. but I need you to stick with me. Mm-hmm. So from a political standpoint, it's always bad to lose as a president, right? You don't want to have that loss around your around your neck. But at the at the time when they made the decision, I think it's um, I think it was smart for – it was a win-win for him. If he loses, then he has Roy Moore there who – is going to be like him taking him on. Were you surprised when Steve Bannon <clears throat> played as prominent a role in that race? And uh, I mean, it's unusual for someone to leave the White House and a few weeks later oppose the candidate the president endorsed. Oh yeah, I don't. Not necessarily though. I, I think Steve has a um, Steve has a very good brand himself that he's built in the last two cycles, and his he had a natural alignment. First of all, he had a. If you're looking at the guy you want to beat to show your first mark, it's us. No Republican had ever. I mean, we had Trump, we had right, we had right to life, we had NRA, we had you know well-funded campaign, but we had a weakness in that we'd taken our appointment from a from mm-hmm. a disgraced governor who's impeached and left office. That was really the central part of the race. So well, if you he was the get, attorney general, and had urged that there not be a case brought against the governor to slow it down so they could he. Could, so they wouldn't right. have overlapping jurisdictions, but yes, yeah, that was. So if you Let, want to, let's go beat just one. say in the world in which you and I just discussed yeah. of political ads, no. it kind of writes itself. It writes itself. Yes. It, it writes itself so much they didn't really had to say it. Yeah, if you were going to talk about three, if you were going to talk, stop a, vote, a voter on the streets of Montgomery and ask them about, they it, knew, they knew. Yeah, and that was Roy Moore was never under fifty. So if you're going to pick that, if you're Steve, you're going to pick one that you're going to win. So it was a really so I wasn't really Smart. surprised in from that Billings standpoint. Own brand. Let me ask you, you this: know, I, I took on Dick Luger and 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 Kit Bond in my own party back in the day. Like I know what it's like to run those camp of of all the campaigns of all the people in the Freedom Caucus. I've elected more of them than anybody else. If anybody in the Republican Study Committee, I've elected more of them than anybody else, including their chairman. If anybody that's has that works with the firebrand conservatives in politics, it's me. 
I understand that passion when you have that, and we have that so hot in this country right now. It is so because you could track it to Obamacare and the failure of the repeal and replace. You can track it to when Trump went after McConnell and not get getting his job done. And this time and spirit that we're in, they picked the perfect race. Let, let me ask you a question storm. about that. You you meant you were you worked for Murdoch in uh, in Indiana. Yep. He beat Dick Luger, who five term or something, yep. uh, U.S. senator from Indiana, highly highly regarded at least in Washington. He was hard. I, I mean, I had a high regard for him. It probably wasn't good for him in a Republican primary. But you ended up losing the seat. Um, in Missouri, did you work for Aiken? I did not. But there was another case where you ended up losing a seat. Is there a danger for the Republican Party in some of these Senate races, Nevada, Arizona, that uh, candidates who are anti-establishment candidates upset, uh, uh, you know, more center-right uh, Republicans, and in swing states, you end up losing seats? Yeah, I believe in base elections. I don't buy it. I mean, we lost that race because we were up four points. We would have won. He said, you know, what he said at the debate with twelve minutes left, eight days out against Donnelly, and um, and it, he had because a, of he what, had a bad uh, yeah he had a bad ra- moment. Ra- yeah he had a bad moment bad moment about rape and about that, yeah, yeah about about stages of pro life. Mm-hmm. Donnelly was pro life while voting for Obamacare and everything else, and mm-hmm. and we were. It didn't stick with Richard Well that he was actually pro-life and still had the little sisters of the poor suing and Notre Dame where Donnelly represented suing. Mm-hmm. But so he had a bad moment. It was predicated on the moment that Aiken had or probably wouldn't have been that big a thing. But I, I don't know if we're exactly ready for full purity yet, but I will tell you the base elections are where the, are where the country is. Do you is. think that uh, uh, Senator Flake, uh, Senator Heller in Nevada viewed as sort of center-right uh, Republicans, do you think they will be the nominees of their party in 2018? Uh, I don't believe Jeff Flake will be. I believe I. I don't know about Heller. It'll be close. Heller's more defined by his. That maybe that was a mistake on his Obamacare, which he eventually voted for. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to say that. But uh, Flake is. I, I think Flake and Claire McCaskill are the two most likely members of of the Senate to not return. Do you think uh, Trump? it will be an asset to the Republican Party in 2018? I do. I do. I believe we get a lot of his upside and the things that he does that are, that voters don't like, they don't ascribe them to their local congressman or senator. I think this, in 06 and, and, and 2010, you know, you get these years where you start showing everybody's percentage of how they voted with the president if they're, if they're underperforming. And... Um, you can't shake it. It goes all the way down to city council races and county commissioner races. You just can't shake it. If you had a picture with Bush in 06, you were dead. And if you had a picture with your boss, you know, in a couple of off years, you were dead. Um, <clears throat> I don't think he does that. He's his own brand. And so we get if we do it right and we actually get things done in Washington, which we're not today, but if we do it right, then we're going to get the benefit of some of the people that he brings to the process without – them holding us accountable for some of the stuff that he does. That you they don't believe like. that the failure to to <clears throat> repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, is a base depressor. Yeah, yeah, it, that's the nicest thing I'd say about it. And uh, the, really, nothing else has happened other than uh, Judge Gorsuch. 
uh, out of Congress. Well, there's actually a lot of things happening, but we're not talking about a lot of them. But I'm sure we're not. But 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 the so how big is this tax reform bill? It has to happen. Flat out has to happen. You you and I were talking the other day, and you said you 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 have you how many Senate races are you doing? Uh, we're involved in eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you you sensed after the Moore election a new sense of urgency yeah, among they, those incumbents. I think they understand. I, I think they understood before. I just think this puts a finer point on the fact that Washington – that if you're – and this goes to your point about do you put a swing seat in jeopardy because you nominate too, somebody too conservative. I don't believe voters view it that way. I believe that elections are based on people being motivated to go to participate. And they are not going to be motivated to go participate if a party can't do anything when they get in power. They're not going to give money. They're already starting not to. They're not going to go vote. They're not going to go work. There's no reason to do. There's no urgency for it. And I think there's real urgency on our side to have people who go to Washington and fight to get this done. Not just, you know, I don't know what exactly people want to do. I don't even know what I want. I was in the Capitol when McCain did his down. I don't think anybody should have, like, tackled him or something. But there's no outrage. It's just from the voters. And just because there's not an election happening today doesn't mean people aren't pissed. And so where's how's that going to? Here's what happens in conservatives, though, and this is why Steve you know, has a role in this, is because most of the times conservatives can't win because they don't run good campaigns. I did Richard Murdoch as a general consultant for free through the primary. That's how much I am not, was not a Dick Luger fan. I think that those people hurt us more. I mean, I was – it's famous, right? I think Democrats are maybe this way. I am much less of a fan of Arlen Specter than I was Ted Kennedy. Like at least with Ted Kennedy, I knew what I had, and he had a position I just didn't agree. Yeah. Our inspector is like every other day he's selling us out for something, and so he was a Republican turned, <clears throat> and at the end of his career turned yeah, not, yeah, and from so Pennsylvania. And when he when he let, when he switched parties, I cheered. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sad. So I think our voters. I I don't believe at all. I I believe I have fundamental alignment with our voters. I don't I don't have to. I see this so much closer that it makes me even more angry that we can't get things done that we've all campaigned on for years. I just can't. And so taxes, if they, if we can't find alignment, healthcare is hard, taxes is hard. But if there's not any more unifying message between cutting government and taxes, I don't know what it is. If they can't do that, it's a, it is a ser- serious problem. Well, we will see in the next few months. <laughs> Jeff Rowe, it's, uh, it's good to have you here. Uh, I am... Uh, Eager to see uh, your seminars with kids here at the yes, I am too. Institute of Politics, and uh, trust me, they will challenge you as they've challenged me. I'm sure that's right. I had three come in this morning, and uh, I can tell already. I'm in. I better bring my A game. They're really <laughs> talented kids. Good to be with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 